welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Have been or way better? No, way better than I have been. And I was making it too complicated. Hear that a lot. Well, I already started the podcast. For those of you listening, this is Knock On Podcast 100, by the way. Congrats. Um, Joining me at the table, we're actually in Oklahoma. We've had a very eventful uh, few days so far. We're actually enjoying some fellowship with friends, um, and we're in a hunting camp, so there's going to be some background noises. That was Jim Miller cracking a can open, and I'm joined by EJ, EJ, um, who you've heard on the podcast in the past, and also Chad from Whiskey at Whiskey Bent Barbecue. Um, Chad works for... Traeger, he is the barbecue guru. He's beyond the John Dudley of barbecue. And then I've got my buddy Tyler Stark here um, as well, who learned how to shoot a bow two days ago. And tonight shot his first hog with, yes, sir. with the silverback. Yep. That is a major accomplishment. So this is going to be a podcast based around, I want to talk about from from the field to the fork I think that's what we need to talk about because Traeger changed my life uh, six months ago that was like the best thing I ever I did not even know they existed and that's what our CEO said he said nobody in the world knew it existed that's why I bought the company (laughs) I did not yeah I did not know it existed at all and I actually, um, after I got my first one, I called Tyler and I said that we were going to Hoppies down in Florida, me, Sharon, and Little Dud, and that we were going to shoot some hogs, and, you know, we wanted, I I wanted to see literally from field to fork done the right way, you know, and so that I could learn as well, so um, Tyler hooked me up with you, Chad, Chad literally drove over with your buddy, what was your buddy's name, I forgot. Griff. Yeah, and uh, airborne guy. Yep. Yep. And man, that was an amazing feast. So when we decided to get a bunch of our friends together, and actually we're missing a bunch of people. Got um, Eric Gudgel's here. Uh, we've got Jimmy here. We've got Wesley here. My buddy Clay. There's quite a few people here. But uh, let's talk about let's talk about the basics. Someone gets a grill. What should they like? What where do they start at? Well, I always say first you should buy a Traeger, and then the next thing you should buy is a good digital thermometer. Because everybody gets caught up, you know, when when they first start on, well, it's eight pounds. How much per pound? What what time per pound? Well, I think we all know this, you know, especially talking to outdoorsmen. Every animal's lived a different life. Some of them grown up on high 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 grade protein. The other one's been eating acorns their whole life. Yeah, and and that goes the same for even even farm raised animals. Um, so I always tell people, you know, it, it's one of those things that I pay attention to. I like to cook 
almost everything at two, 275 degrees. Um, I feel like it's it's a high enough temperature to where the meat doesn't dry out. <clears throat> you still get plenty of smoked flavor. Um, but, you know, I kind of say start out with that consistent temperature. That's one of the reasons I like a Traeger. You know, when somebody starts on like a, a cheaper offset or something like that, the problem is when the meat's exposed to these varying temperatures, you know, like let's say a, a, a you know, like a Brinkman stick burner. You know, it's got a little box on the side in the cook chamber. Yeah. You get that thing fired up and it's 250 degrees. Now you put meat on it. It drops down to 215. You know, you add some more fuel to it. It jacks up to 300. You walk away for 45 minutes. It drops down to 185. So it's not insulated. There's no automatic feed. You're having to do it. Well, when you're yo-yoing cook temperatures like that, think about what the meat's doing. Yeah. It's opening up the pores, closing the pores, opening the pores, closing the pores, which is all it's doing is making the muscle fiber you know, just really, really tough. So it ends up giving you a tough cut of meat. So find something, preferably a Traeger, that's got some consistent temp. Cook, cook at a consistent temperature. I like 275. Um, and then just let the thermometer tell you where to go. You know, let, let's say I always tell people start with pork butt if you want to smoke. Very forgiving, very inexpensive. Um, start with a butt. You know if you're starting with an 8-pound butt at 275, you're going to be able to cook it for four hours on a Traeger without really having to worry about it. Yep. Fill up your pellet hopper, throw it on, go play nine holes if you want to. Go go, go have some target practice. Hell, go, go kill a buck. I don't care. <laughs> but you, you've got four hours a, a time. And then everybody talks about, you know, do I wrap it? Do I not wrap it? The one thing that I do is I let the color dictate that to me. I always say I like my barbecue to look like a fine piece of furniture, kind of a rich mahogany color to it. Um, once it's reached that color, sometimes depending on the outside, you know, conditions, the humidity, the wind, it could be 165 degrees. Sometimes it could be 180 degrees. Also, it could determine what rub you put on it. If you put more of a sugary based rub on it, it's going to get darker color quicker. Um, if you put something that's more just savory herbs and spices without much sugar. It may take a little bit longer to get darker. Wrap it when you like the color because the, the wrapping process, what it allows you to do is if you keep cooking in that open chamber the whole time, you're going to keep losing moisture out of the meat. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you foil it, you're going to expedite that cooking process, losing more moisture or losing less moisture. But the other thing is you're now cooking with steam. You're not cooking with raw heat. Yeah. Um, so it really works out. And at that point, on a pork butt, I always tell people to start, if you're just wanting to make pulled pork, 200 degrees is the number. But as you become a more seasoned cook, the number really doesn't even matter anymore. It's more of a guideline. What I'm looking for when I put that temperature probe in there is, if you, you ever left a, a stick of butter out for like four or five hours at room temp, and you put a thermometer in it, it glides right in, and then when you get to about the middle of the butter, there's just a little bit of resistance. That's what I'm shooting for on briskets and pork butts, big cuts of meat. Um, because what that's telling me is, at that point, that meat's fully cooked, really, really well, really tender, but in the middle, there's still just a little resistance. And the reason you want that little bit of resistance is carryover cook. When you take it off the grill, it just doesn't stop. Yep. You know, it's gonna, you've got all this thermal energy inside the meat. It's going to continue to cook for another two to four degrees. So always take that into consideration, especially on like a tenderloin where you're really wanting a medium rare, you're really wanting a medium. 
you cook it right up to that 135, then it carryover cooks. You just went from medium rare to medium. Yep. I know that was a really long intro, Doug. <laughs> well, the thing is with you. We just did 101, 102, and 103 all in the introduction. <laughs> yeah. Advanced class. Yeah, we haven't even, yeah. We haven't even asked you to get advanced yet. Well, one thing that I learned that made a huge difference, and you know, I'm basing it. One, I don't want this to sound like a big sales podcast because it's really not. This is something that I'm passionate about, and all of my followers who are seeing me post every single time, there's someone saying, "When are you going to do like a knock on cookbook or something?" And I'm literally got training wheels right now. All I'm doing, um, Sharon and I made it a point to to take the Traeger book. We're literally working on like one recipe at a time out of that Traeger book because it's it's like foolproof. And then obviously with cooking, it's no different than archery or fighting. You surround yourself with people that are really, really exceptional at it and then you learn a lot more because I feel like I've got training wheels I think Tyler's good. Jim, what do you got? Are you training wheels? Training wheels. Yeah. Dude, but but, then, but what I saw on his Instagram today, a hell of a confectioner. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I want. We got to share that recipe on the podcast yeah. where it's all over, man. What did you do today? I didn't even see it. No, this was from like for maybe the holidays. Yeah, I made uh, caramels. You did? Yeah. I'm a smoker? I, no, no, not a smoker. <laughs> no, but bro, he's so I, underselling these things. I, they look like they should have been like in the in, in the window, you know, on on Madison <laughs> Avenue. I mean, these things were like. I'm gonna. Well, thank you. I need yeah. to find these. Yeah, it's on his Instagram account. Is it before the picture of me with? Yes, it was. It was post Van Dam. Those are solid. Dude. Yeah. Thank For those of you who are listening, it's Jim Miller underscore one fifty five. One five five, and yeah, and that's not the pieces of brisket he ate tonight. That's the way classy fights. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. Maybe Sharon, Sharon would be all over that. She would love those. And EJ is, EJ is. I would say, how would you classify yourself as a cook? Passionate with a lot of research. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's perfect. I bought a Brinkman in '92, and I've just gotten. Consistently better equipment and better advice. What well, you said you got like what forty cook forty barbecue cookbooks? Yeah, about about forty barbecue cookbooks. Wow! And how much did you learn this in one and a half days with Chad? Um, that I'm overcomplicating it and trying to make it <laughs> too difficult. I have too many processes, and I need to do more detail in how I trim the the chicken legs, cut out the tendons on on both end and the thighs, how to trim a thigh properly. Well, I think I think he's totally right. For me, when I just go back to the basics of what I saw him, when I first saw you in Florida, I was trying to, like I know what people taught me with my smoker when I had a, just a smoker. And when I was asking you, your process is like so much less time and you're still having a smoke ring, and there's been so many things that people have told me on maybe why their way is better or why a different way is better, and you have so much science behind why you cook exactly the way you do. So let's talk about some people feel like you have to 
smoke for a really long period of time in order to get the ring that you want. But the ring that we just got, we had an unbelievable meal cooked. I'm getting ready to post a video of it um, on my Instagram account of the whole meal, but every single thing has a smoke ring on it. And we were literally, we left to go out for our afternoon hunt and then came back. And other than, I guess, the brisket you started early, and the, but, and the pork butt, but yeah. Yep, but everything else, you you nailed it, man. So what's the philosophy there? Well, you know, when it comes to smoke ring, it's it's a really a, a myth. And I won't go into all the details. I will kind of hit it at a high level. Um, but if you want more information on it, go over to AmazingRibs.com. A uh, guy named Meathead Goldwyn, he's just a... Meathead gets some of the best scientists in the world and just goes and kind of debunks some of these barbecue myths and, and legends. But the, the really what the smoke ring is, it's a reaction of the nitrates in the meat to to temperature. Yep. So the he you know, Meathead will even show you where he's cooked something in a grill but in parchment paper, you know, which which should get no smoke exposure right. and created a smoke ring. Um, you know, so to me you don't have to, you know, when when I sit there and I listen to you know, these guys go, man, I cooked an 18-hour brisket. I'm like, holy holy crap, man, that's that's a long time. You know, yeah. like, that's, you know, I try to keep my, my margin of error window still pretty wide by not cooking at a super hot temperature. Like, you know, Myron Mixon's a guy that everybody knows in barbecue. And when Myron competes, he cooks between, you know, 375 and 425 degrees. Which you can do that. He's the most winningest man in barbecue. The problem is... If you don't catch that brisket or that pork butt in that fifteen minute window of its optimum, yeah, it's gone. You know, so you'll you'll sometimes see a cook like him go to a contest and and have two really strong categories and two really bad categories. Mm-hmm. Whereas me, I still like to have that margin of error to where maybe I've got twenty five to thirty minutes, you know, to 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 really get it pulled off and have something good to give the judges. So I, I just liked that two seventy five. Because another thing I found, and the reason I went there was because I used to cook it 235, 245 degrees. But I noticed you'll have something called the stall um, on your bigger cuts, on your pork butts, on your briskets. And when you're cooking at a lower temp, the stall is usually lower. It's like somewhere between like 160 and 175 degrees. It'll just slow down. You only pick up like two internal temperature degrees in like an hour. I don't like the stall. To me, and, and I don't... I know a little bit of the science behind it. The stall is a huge opportunity for meat to dry out. Mm-hmm. So what I said was, hey, what happens if I bump it up to 275? I wonder what happens to the stall. I did it in a contest, which I usually don't try things for the first time in a contest. And uh, boom, I took first place pork and first place brisket. And what I noticed was, instead of like an hour stall, I had about a 30-minute stall, but it was at a higher temperature. It was like... 180 to 190-ish is where the stall went through. Uh, but it was a lot quicker. So that's the reason I, I kind of cook at that temp. Um, getting back to something you said earlier and something EJ said about keeping it, you know, being much more simple and not so complicated, that comes from being a competitive barbecuer. If you're out there cooking you know, 18 to 25 contests a year and you've got this mountain of steps you go through, the chances of replicating that are slim to none. Right. Um, to me, when I go to a contest, the the Monday of the contest, I've got an Excel spreadsheet that I print out. And it's the same for every contest. If I make a change, I, I do it in, in this living document. The first page is my shopping list. 
the second page is my recipes, and the next three pages are every step I need to take from Thursday morning till my last turn in on Saturday. Um, I'm organized, but but I've done it a lot. You know what I'm saying? And and really, it helps me when we get on a roll like we were on last year and, and this year so far. It allows me to keep replicating those results without you know having to you know go through this whole litany of things. Well, it's the same. It's no different than I'm sure EJ will say this about golf. Um, I'll certainly say it about archery. Tyler can definitely agree with that because we we really focused on just basic steps to yep. get to a procedure. And really, what's most important about archery is being repetitive and being repetitive with the exact same steps. You can add a ton of steps to shooting a bow, but the body naturally starts to do a lot of the things right on its own if you focus on a few very key points. And with Tyler, the very first time you shot, which was only a few days ago, I gave you a lot of information. You were trying to literally process a lot of information at one time. And then when I could see that you were thinking about more than maybe what you should, I just said, that's enough for today. And we took like a whole day off and then you, I knew the next morning you were kind of raring to go, but I just kind of wanted you to like think about it for a while. And then when you picked up your bow and started shooting again, you had actually thought about things in your head enough to where you weren't like trying to intentionally do more than what you should. And then you started to naturally shoot better. And then yesterday, I think one more time, you started to do that again. And I said, hey, quit thinking about all the other stuff just focus on these specific things in order and it seems like when you really focus on the fundamentals to anything whether it's sport or obviously even cooking i know you know sharon and i cook a lot of food for guests we always have people at our house continually and everyone's just like wow why is this so good and honestly our cabinet is so minimalized now <coughs> It's like if you have a decent olive oil or coconut oil or a, a decent vinegar, if you've got, you know, some type of a, a hot sauce, and then if you have some basic rubs, you're done. Like all these, you know, big variations of marinades and things, it just, they really start to get, almost get too complex to have other things on the plate that taste good with it. Well, it, it starts muddying things up, right? Now you've got flavors stepping on top of flavors, stepping on top of flavors. And, and the thing to always remember is the protein is the star. You want to do nothing to cover that up. Every marinade, brine, injection, rub, sauce should only be there to complement the meat, to make it stand on a higher platform. If you're doing anything that covers up the quality of the food, that animal died for a bad cause, <laughs> in my opinion. You know yes. what I mean? I mean, <laughs> eat it with some honor, guys. Um, but but once again, I, I think, too, though, when I started looking at it that way, you know, I said, you know, like chicken. I don't need to brine and inject. That's like overkill, you know, because when you start brining it, you start messing around with the muscle fibers a little bit. Then you're injecting it. You're messing around with the muscle fibers anymore. Well, no kidding, Chad. When you bite into the chicken, it's mushy. Well, you did that yourself. Well, yeah. you know, let, let's go back and step back and, and see what that was. And you know, I took brining out, and I just started injecting. And 
boom, it gave me that extra moisture I wanted the judges to get, but it didn't mess with the texture of the meat. So, yeah, I completely agree, man. When you step back and you kind of minimize that pantry and minimize your cook steps, I mean, I can think of numerous times when you texted me and said, hey, man, I've got this. Remind me what to do again. And literally, I can tell you in three sentences on a text, started this, yep. go to this. When it hits this internal, do this. Go to this internal. Remember what I taught you about feel. Yep. And and, and, and I think sometimes when you got guests coming over, people you want to impress, you get all caught up on yeah, and I could tell when me and John first met, and we've got this hog out there and all these different hog pieces. <laughs> I would go inside, and I'd go outside, mess around, you know, look at things for like ten minutes, and then come back in and sit on the couch for an hour. And I'm thinking, he's looking at me like, "Dude, how good's this meal gonna be, man? This guy's doing a lot of talking and and soaking up AC to be a pit master, but uh, it worked out, you know." Yeah, it was it was unbelievable, is what it was. Um, EJ. You're the master of notes. What do you got written down on your notepad right there? Oh, that's work stuff for Garland on the feed side. I uh, oh, <laughs> I uh, I didn't. I was. I can remember most of what Chad told me, and since he's going to give me his card, I'll have the direct the hot, the red phone hotline number if I have any <laughs> issues. So, I'll. Uh, I don't have any notes, but um, I was I was impressed with, and you know, you brought it up with Traeger, and it's not a sales pitch, but I'll be honest, I didn't. I mean, it never dawned on me to the commitment and quality in talking to uh, to them the last couple of days about where they plan on going, you know, with the line, which is pretty neat. I'm, Can I'm we glad talk I was about here. That? Uh, let's save that. We'll tease that for another episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and I'm not, I guess obviously I'm not allowed to talk, but I'm, I'm very impressed about this next release and where they're going. And, and I think it's going to do, and talking to Chad and Heller, I think it's going to do a lot for him to, to jump into that. Yeah, that you've next level. Yeah, you've literally from what what is on the way, which we were lucky enough to find out about this weekend, and got to see some sneak peeks. It's um, it's really going to be a new game changer for the people that are like me that are really into cooking good, but then all want to move to another level. Yep. You know, without get without getting um, it's simplified with, too. I mean, you're going to get you know way more. Uh, a more benefit, more ease, and better quality cook. I think, and it's going to be simpler. Oh yeah, which is even really neat. Yeah, you know, I sit there and I look at. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've been cooking on one of the Alpha models since March of last year, and uh, helped, helped me cash a bunch of checks last year on the circuit. And that was our Alpha unit. And we've we've changed some things around and made some improvements. I mean, that's obviously why you put an Alpha model out there. Um, but I got to say, today, we cooked it on the old trusty Pro 34. Oh, yeah. And uh, and it still comes through. And I still think that's a great uh, – I still think that Pro 22 and that Pro 34 is a great grill for for that person that's either wanting to jump into barbecue or, you know, has even messed around with some, you know, uh, you know WSM, like Weber Smoky Mountains or things like that and wants to take their game to another level. And, and the thing I find, you know, when you talk to people that buy one, you know, a Traeger – is that there's two things that they, they say. They say, one, I wish I'd have bought the bigger size. Yeah. And number two is they say, I never knew I would cook outdoors this much. You know, but because it's not a it's not an all-day affair. You know, you can you can fire up your trigger and cook pork chops after dinner or chicken breasts after dinner. You don't have to worry about, you know, firing up a charcoal chimney or yeah. whatever that case what is. What about a pizza stone? Check. They're do the pizza stone in there? Yeah. 
Because I do pizza on my other one. They're unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. So it would be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah. I, you just, I, you know, because because we top out at around 450 on the Pro, I always tell people just throw it in there a little bit earlier, give it maybe an extra five minutes, and, um, dude, it, make, it makes phenomenal pizza. And I'll tell you, sometimes I don't even use a stone. We've got a great take-and-bake pizza place around my house, and uh, usually during the summer on Sundays after a barbecue contest, uh, my parents and niece will come over and, I don't feel like barbecuing anything, but I still fire up the Traeger, and mom and dad bring two take-and-bake pizzas, and I set it at 375 and slide them in there, cook them for 14 minutes, slide them out, and you get just that hint of smoke that's uh, you know so much more badass than just throwing in the oven. <laughs> yeah, they're way better that way. And we're smoking spinach, dud. I know. Yeah, we had smoked <laughs> salad. <laughs> Chad literally did a wilted spinach salad for me. With uh, grilled squash on it, and it was unbelievable. Our dessert was grilled, the, or the smoked salmon. Yeah, strawberries yeah, for lunch. He did a grilled strawberry uh, pound cake. Pound cake, ridiculous. Yeah, poor Jim's like got a fight in one week for UFC 208. We have to make sure that he doesn't gain weight, and it's the one time where you would. If this was the day after the fight, you could do some serious damage oh, on yeah. the food. Yeah, that definitely would have done a lot more damage. Uh, I get to the point where, though, it's um, I'm a responsible adult, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> what? Believe it or not, believe it or not. No, but uh, I... But it's all about portion control. I, I help myself to everything that's up on the table there. I agree. But uh, in moderation. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when, when you're talking about composing things, can we talk about that salad for a second? Because I'll tell you kind of how it came around. Yeah, yeah. So the, the spinach salad tonight was a little bit of a... Well, when you come out of this specific hunting camp in uh, Oklahoma, you'll learn that you're not going to have a lot of whole foods. You had to do most of my shopping. It saved a lot. Yep. So I had to swap out some things in the recipe because they weren't around. But the original recipe is a, a, a wilted smoked spinach with asparagus. They didn't have asparagus, so I went with the squash. And, and what you're looking for there, what I like about the asparagus, and, and the squash worked the same way, was you still wanted some kind of crunch element. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice, you know, a lot of times when people put veggies, I think it's what the number one sin people do with veggies on the grill, is they'll take them, put them in olive oil, put them in an aluminum boat, and just cook the hell out of them. Like, yeah. you know, they're all wilted, and, and, and at that point they're like... They're not. They don't have that snap. I mean, they veggies should pop. always have yeah. that little bit of mm-hmm. pop to them. Yeah, big um, time. So, you know, the, the other thing I look at there is, man, this is missing something from a true crunch element point of view. And so tonight we use trail mix because I couldn't find <laughs> candy pecans. I usually like it to be candy pecans because you get a little bit of sweet with it too. And um, and then the other piece I put in was I wanted something with a little bit of saltiness, um, and some richness. So feta cheese just lends itself well. It's kind of got a higher melt point, so it doesn't melt away, but it gets a little bit of gooey with with that. And then to top it off, it was like, well, what kind of salad dressing am I going to use? And I'll tell you how this came about. I was teaching, I was going to teach this recipe for the first time at one of my classes at my store. And I had meant to get a salad dressing at the store, at like the grocery store, and I didn't. So I'm like, crap. So I'm looking around at my store. And I see this barbecue sauce, and I saw a little bit of apple cider vinegar. I'm like, well, dude, why don't I just make a barbecue sauce vinaigrette? And so 
what, what I usually do is, let's say you've got a 12-ounce bottle of barbecue sauce, pour out four ounces of it onto the salad, fill up those four ounces of apple cider vinegar, mix it really well, and then dress the salad with that. That's for a larger salad. I mean, we had like a four-pound salad tonight. Yeah. And we dressed it with, what's that, 16 ounces of, uh, of dressing, which was kind of a, a half and half between apple cider and, and barbecue. But um, once again, it was just sitting there and kind of looking at the dish and what does it need, you know? And then we grilled off the limes and put a little bit of that lime juice on there just for a little more fruit acid yep. to kind of break some of the richness up. And, uh, and that's kind of how I look at it. And I'm not a classically trained chef. I'm all self-taught. But sometimes just kind of think through it logically on how do you balance out the dish to where it, it wakes all those taste buds up but still has a little bit of medley to it. What do you think is one thing that anyone who is a hunter that's preparing their own meat to be cooked, what do you think is most important when it comes to making sure that it's going to taste right on the table? I think once again it gets back to internal temperature. I mean, let's let's take those those pork back straps that we had today, you know, off that hog that, that Jim killed this morning. Um, you know, I knew I know going into that, and you'll notice. I mean, those things were. You know, it seemed like to me when I looked at them, two foot long. Mm-hmm. But you know they don't have much fat. So yeah. the number one thing I was concerned with was, and, and they weren't super thick, so you knew they were going to cook pretty quick. Right. You know, EJ, I'll tell you, I, once I put them on, I didn't leave. I just kind of sat there on my cooler and, and kind of hung out because I knew it was going to be a 30, 45-minute cook. Mm-hmm. So that's one where I'm probably opening the lid more than usual about every 10 minutes after the first 20, checking that internal temperature. You know, and, and that's one of the things that I think, and for me, I pulled them off at 160 degrees because I knew I didn't want to go over 165, but I still wanted to make sure we were far enough with it being a wild animal that, that everybody was going to be safe tonight. Yeah. So over, I mean, and I I think most people know this, but with, with wild game animals, they're much leaner than anything that you're going to get. Yes. So overcooking them is the one thing that you can do to make i mean everything from duck yeah on down the line if you if you cook it to well then you're going to bring out the an actual gamey taste to the meat yeah and it's just going to be tough to get through i mean it's just going to be tough to cut tough to chew you know i i I, one of those two things i'd never cooked before about a year and a half ago i was doing a project with uh, kid rock and showed up at his place in alabama and pulled out the Traeger to do some cooking and he's like uh dude I got two things for you man I've got he is I had this I got this huge turkey breast that I killed that I've been brining for a couple days because I knew you were coming and I've got this fresh access deer backstrap yeah and I'm like you know I was coming you could have gave me a heads up you know I brought something (laughs) or whatever but once again I just looked at it and said okay you know access deer dude you definitely don't want to overcook that I mean it's it's so rich it's so lean but it's so damn good when it's oh, yeah. done right. So I remember, man, I, I took it and I cooked it to 128 degrees. Um, I put it in my, I, I wrapped it up, put it in my Yeti, and I let it in that Yeti cook up those extra four or five degrees to where it was at 132, 133. And then I did the same thing on the turkey breast. I mean, this is a huge turkey breast. I knew it was wild. Um, so I cooked it to 147 degrees. I was shooting for 155. Wrapped it up again, threw it in the Yeti, and I got to say, him and his hunting buddies, I cut it all up, and they, you know, served it to him, kind of walked off, take care of some things, and uh, Kid Rock came back, you know, probably 20 minutes later, and I think about this guy's a wild game all over the world, and he said, dude, he said, 
no joke. You can put it on on film, whatever you want to say. Because that's the two best meat, two best bites of wild game I've ever had in my <laughs> life. Which I thought was cool because it was two things that I hadn't cooked before, but I just applied the principles that I know, which which are simple. You know, it's not you know we're not talking about organic chemistry here. Um, but but I think that would be the number one thing. The other one is. And this goes for wild game or anything else. If you're going to apply some barbecue sauce to it, do it in the last 10 to 15 minutes. When I start seeing these guys baste with a sugary barbecue sauce, like an hour out, man, all it's going to do is over-caramelize. It's going to give a burnt flavor to your meat. And it's just going to make you really sad that you spent all that time and money harvesting that animal to not really get to enjoy it. Yeah, no doubt. Do you wrap any of that lean stuff in bacon ever? And no, I leave bacon for breakfast. I, 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 I believe, <laughs> I believe if you really pay attention to the animal uh, and you process it right and you cook it right, it doesn't need the bacon. Bacon is just a crutch, right? It's just it, it's that excuse of, well, it doesn't have enough natural fat, so I need to add fat. No, you don't. You just need to cook it right. If you want to cook bacon, cook it on the side. And if you're going to cook it, I'd suggest putting a little bit of maple syrup on it, a sprinkle of pot cayenne pepper, and it's pretty good pig candy. <laughs> Cooking it to crispy. When you huh? wrap stuff in bacon, the bacon's never crispy. No, it's not. It's just kind of limp. It's yeah. just like there. I mean, yeah, it's know. a waste of bacon. No limp bacon in seventeen. No. Well, people who haven't cooked on a Traeger wood pellet grill, they don't have any idea of the simplicity of it. That it's really, really hard to overdo something on it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you pretty much have to be completely distracted to overdo something whereas grills that i cooked with before i wreck stuff all the time because i'd get distracted and those few minutes you look out and your grill's smoking and you're like oh great i mean so that's that's the time where you gotta wrap it in bacon to prevent that stuff going guess on we're having but... quinoa by itself tonight <laughs> what i guess we're having quinoa by itself tonight yeah. <laughs> I haven't done quinoa on the grill yet, but we've we're into uh, yeah we're into quinoa with uh, Traeger grilled veggies. It's been pretty dynamite. And that's one thing to always remember too about you know if it's a Traeger or whatever grill you have, it's a heat source. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 there there aren't things that can just only things certain things can be grilled. That's why I like doing the salads, doing the desserts, things like that because it's it's a heat source that just has awesome flavor to go along with it. And that's the other thing I like about the Traeger is it's always clean smoke, it's always good smoke, and it's never over-smoked. You know, I mean, I, I hate that, you know, getting a piece of barbecue that's been over-smoked, and it's just, once again, the smoke is overshadowing the meat. Mm-hmm. Smoke's there just like everything else, and it's just to complement and, and bring out the strengths of the meat. It's not supposed to cover it up. What's your, what's your philosophy on sear? Because I have, there's been a few buddies of mine... Well, actually, my mom and another one of my buddies specifically have said, well, I just really like having that that sear mark with higher temperature because, you know, the triggers don't go to a super high temperature, but from what you told me, where you're actually measuring that temperature from is different. And yes. then what's your feelings on the, like, what's the science behind the sear? Okay, so this, I, I don't believe in searing at the very beginning of the cook. So 
probably nine out of ten people that are listening to this podcast have been brought up on you got to sear it first to sear in the juices. Man, whoever told you that, write them out of your will. <laughs> it's not true because what happens is if you think about it, just just think about the muscles for a second. So we're taking the steak out of the fridge. Most people, this is the exact process. Take the steak out of the fridge. They fired up their grill. They season up the steak. Grill's ready to go. Blazing hot. And they go and they throw this 40-degree piece of meat onto this six, 700-degree grill. Well, think about it. You're taking a piece of meat that's cold. And what I'm doing is kind of holding my hand together. Think about all those muscle fibers are really, really tight because it's cold, right? The piece of meat's cold. Yeah. And what happens when you take something extremely cold and put it on something extremely hot? It contracts even further. Well, when you do that with muscles, what's inside of muscles? Cellular structure, right? What do cells carry? Water. So in the first 15 seconds of putting this thing on a hot grill, you've done what you don't want to do. You've purged all the water out of the top one-eighth or one-sixteenth of an inch. And the way you know that happened is... Has anybody here ever cooked a steak, and when you cut it open and you look at it, there's a gray line all the way around the outside? Mm-hmm. That gray line is the cellular structure you destroyed when you seared it at the very beginning. And believe it or not, it gives the food an off flavor. So, now let's go to the method that I like. It's called the reverse sear. I didn't invent it, but I've heavily embraced it. Um, take the steak out. I'm going to talk to you about... An inch and a half ribeye, because I've ate two or three of them in my day. <laughs> and cooked a whole bunch of them. Um, inch and a half ribeye, you pull it out. Uh, you got your, you know, I do mine on Traeger. You got your Traeger cranked up. Um, what, what, what I do is I season both sides, and I like to let that steak sit on the counter for about 15 minutes. Just let it come up to room temp. Um, or not even room temp all the way, but knock, what I call knock the chill off of it, right? Um, and you'll start to see it. When that rub starts to become kind of a slurry on top of the steak, mm-hmm. I'm good to go. So I go out, triggers at 275, and I'm going to throw it on there for about 14 minutes, 15 minutes each side. I'm a medium rare guy. Um, about the time that I pull it off, it's going to be about 110, 112 degrees internal. I'm going to pull it off, put it on a plate, just sit it there on my front shelf, and I'm going to crank my trigger all the way up to 450 or high. Um, what I do to help with this is we, we have a really good cast iron upgrade kit, cast iron grate upgrade kit. And so I've got cast iron grates on, on my Pro 34 at home. And once that thing gets to about 400, 425, 430 degrees, I put my steaks in the back right-hand corner. And the reason I put them in the back right-hand corner is if you ever look at the thermodynamics of our grill... That's where the exhaust is. So that's going to be the hottest part is that back right corner. And so I'll put them back there, sear them for about 90 seconds each side, and I still get that that sear that everybody talks about. And what that sear everybody talks about is truly what's called the Mylard effect. And the Mylard effect is the caramelization of proteins at high temperatures. So I still get that on my Traeger, so I still get the good good, but then when you cut into that piece of meat, after you let it rest five, six minutes, it's so much more juicier. It's so much more cooked uniform throughout. Um, the texture of it's really different. I mean, I know, Tyler, you've ate some reverse sear stuff kind of here recently. 
and I just don't do it with steak. I do it with pork chops, chicken breast. Same theory. I'm, you know, chicken breast, boneless, skinless. I'm going about 20 minutes each side, looking for an internal of about 145 degrees, and then I'm searing that thing for 90 seconds each side, pulling it off around 160, and it's good to go. Oh, yeah. Well, Gudge just walked in. What'd you, what'd you do? Caddo Crunch. <laughs> got my rig. So, went and got my rig from the boneyard. Yeah, I happened to see a nice little hog right in the road. You did? Oh, yeah. All right, we'll have to get him tomorrow. Well, mm-hmm. Tyler, what, uh, what's some feedback you have as a first weekend archer? What do you got? Well, it's a lot harder than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> I was fortunate enough to have some uh, great and advice. And you're learning from the Zen master. Yeah, so exactly. About it. Yeah, well, I think that made it a little bit harder, actually, you know, being a newbie going up next to him. You know, yeah. I didn't want to mess up. But, uh, no, I think, it, I, I think I did okay. I hope I was a good student for you. I think I, I definitely learned a lot, and I know I'm going to go home and practice and practice. And at least tonight, fingers crossed, things seem to connect, and uh, hopefully we have a hog down. As a beginner, what are the things that you think would be most important for other listeners that are starting out to to, to think about? Well, I mean, the biggest thing for me uh, that I learned is all about the posture um, and especially having a consistent kind of anchor point uh, on your draw back. I think, you know, once I kind of figure out where that anchor point was on my jaw, things just kind of naturally align from the peep site through my, uh, through my dots on the site. Um, you could really feel, you know, when I started overthinking it, I would tense up and I would kind of scrunch in and I'd be moving all around. But, you know, when I locked that in on the back of my chin in the right spot, everything lined and I was perfectly sighted down each time. And that was the, that was probably the hardest thing to think about, um, was just really keeping that there. Even tension, sometimes you were nervous, right? So maybe not nervous is the right word, but when you were you kind of it was almost like you were expecting there to be like more to happen when the bow went off so you yeah you know I, I, really I'm a shotgun afraid. shooter I, I like to do waterfall so I guess I was maybe anticipating some sort of recoil or something like that too you know plus having the string on my nose is like oh is it gonna you know snap me or things like that there's a, a lot different process into to shooting a bow than there is a rifle or some of these other things yeah with Tyler he would and this is common with most people but when you start to get tense you start to almost clench both fists it's it's a natural reaction when you're you know when you're nervous you kind of get tense the hands normally tense up first and um you learned it really affects how your draw length Mm -hmm. and your actual fit of your bow so the more you tense up your hands and fist up your hands um which jim needs to do that sometimes um (laughs) it starts to shorten all your draw and everything. So then you start to have to go further to the string or tip your head further to try to get to the string because you're not, your alignment and your posture isn't correct. So keeping your front hand relaxed and then keeping your release hand um, straight and rigid, just curled around Mm -hmm. the release um, made big, big improvements for you, but you're shooting a silver back. Yep. And used to. Yeah. No, I found it. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. That was the first thing we looked Good. for. So, tonight when Tyler shot his first hog, first first ever animal with a bow, he got so excited he threw his <laughs> silver back out of the tree. 
<laughs> just kind of fell out on the release back. I just don't know what happened. My, my adrenaline started going. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what happened is it was a live animal. It wasn't a target. Yep, that's right? true. So tell me the difference there. I mean, was that... Yeah, I mean, you know, one of those things, I, I've never hunted hog before ever, and so, you know, John was telling me about the little plate they had that, that could be tough to get through, and so I was really nervous on making sure that I, I went for a hard shot and, and got the most efficient kill that I could, and um, so, yeah, you know, going in and as soon as those hogs came in, trying to find that spot, and it was dark, I, I just kind of kind of trusted my instincts a little bit and uh, I made contact but that that was a really difficult thing because like I said I didn't want to injure the animal I want to make sure it was a clean efficient kill and I think that was one of my biggest fears about bow hunting going into it is not knowing kind of where to, to put the pins exactly. Well and hogs are tough because they continually move mm-hmm. you know they're moving they're continual moving targets and that's one you know I think that's kind of where Eric was going with this um is how is how is your your mental um i guess how is your mental side of actually training on just a target versus all of a sudden trying to make that same shot with a surprise you know with a tension activated release and it was a hunting scenario it wasn't you know a target yeah, I mean, what, I mean, one of the things I was trying to really concentrate on when we were shooting the target was just really kind of controlling my my, my breathing and getting relaxed. Uh, when I got out and I saw the hogs start coming in, my adrenaline spiked, and so that was one of the biggest things I was really trying to do is just kind of calm myself down, go back to the basics that we had worked on, and really think through my shot and, and make sure that I, I had my technique dialed as opposed to, you know, getting all exa- you know hyperventilating or whatever, getting all the adrenaline going and, and just shooting an errant arrow. Um, so that was one of the things that, you know, I, I got my draw back, I held it in my anchor point, I really just kind of got comfortable holding it back there until I felt comfortable releasing it. Um, and that, that was a big thought process for me, is really kind of controlling my breathing and making sure I still stayed relaxed and didn't get, you know, overly caught up in the moment. What, um, were you, did you feel comfortable pulling through? Once you, I did. You know, I, I was sitting down, so that was a, a, a yeah. We didn't practice. We, that. we didn't practice that at all. You know, we kind of talked a little bit about some of the things to do, and it, it really is just keeping, you know, your upper body almost in that same position. Um, and so that that was the biggest challenge on that. But like I say, my whole problem, my, my biggest thing was the adrenaline going. I, I just really wanted to make sure that I could keep my breath calm, make sure I wasn't, you know, continuing my breathing, not like just seizing up and, and getting so tight um, and just kind of keeping my nerves under control was the biggest thing that was going in through my mind. Awesome. Well, yeah, it was fun getting to see you, well, getting to be here with you, whack your first one. And you've made, you should have saw him shooting today at awesome. 20. Twenty. As soon as we stepped back to 20, he was... He's doing better at 20 than he was closer. Well, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't even know what my pins were exactly set to because when we first started practicing, I was maybe at 10 yards and just kind of shooting into the blank bale. And, um, you know, Jim, John, you were on the phone and Jim's like, you know what, maybe you should try. You probably 20, you know, your green pin there will probably shoot a little low. And we backed it up and sure enough, it shot a little low. He's like, well, try the next one down. And sure enough, it got straight into the center. And we're like, okay, I think we found something here. Yeah. I, think, I think having that silver back and starting like, with that silverback, it's a huge advantage. I, I think that's a big thing too. You know, Jim and I were talking when we were practicing, and you know, he's on he's on the knock two or what release or whatever. Uh, and what, I, forgive me being a newbie, but what's that? The trigger activated yeah, release or what do you call it? Thumb active. Yeah. You know, I think you know the silverback is a great example because it 
you know, it keeps you, you know, we talked about the valley. It really made me think about where my draw was stopping, essentially. Yeah. You know, if I pulled too far and took my hand off the safety, that arrow just flung. So it really kind of got me comfortable, you know, holding back in the right position, essentially. Yeah, knowing where your back was. And I think was. if I started with the other one, I'd be more hesitant or more more apt to pull back harder into the draw. And be inconsistent that Exactly. Way. So yeah, part of the reason why people that use the silverbacks feel like, um, especially people that don't stick to it, they feel like there's, that they don't have consistency on when it fires is because they have consistency on how hard they're actually pulling onto the back wall before they either disengage the safety and start to pull through their shot. Or if they have a form breakdown and they're starting to collapse, they feel like they're pulling and nothing is actually even moving. You know they're actually collapsing and that's one of the most important things as an archer is understanding your consistency on your back wall because the back wall of the cam if you take if you take the top five bows and put them in a shooting machine and draw them until they just hit the stop and shoot them and then pull them an extra one click against the stop or pull them two clicks against the stop, almost every bow company will have different impacts, especially when it comes to highs and lows, because of that inconsistency on the on the back wall. Um, same is true when you start to creep. You know, Some bows, when you start to creep forward and you shoot, um, you'll start to also typically be high. Um, so it really helps you identify, you know, for you when you first started, because you were maybe a little bit concerned about what the bow is going to do, you are over pulling through the wall. And one thing that beginners need to realize is when you take a bow, Tyler bought a 60 pound bow and we backed it down to 50 pounds. So when you take the, the poundage on your bow or the limbs on your bow and you reduce that weight, it actually reduces the tension on your string and there's less tension on the string and cable. So because he backed his limbs out 10 pounds worth of pulling weight, when he gets to his back wall, you can bend those cables quite a bit. You know, it gets a lot spongier is what the term would be called. Whereas if you have everything tightened down, all that's a lot like tauner and it'll your wall will be a lot more noticeable and it'll, it'll feel more like a real super solid wall once you have your limbs bottomed out so there were times when you started where you would let off the safety and it would fire and i would let you know okay you're probably pulling like a quarter inch further through the stop or more than what you should so once you started to realize that valley then the consistency in your shot started to dramatically improve and I was able to continually over the last three or four training sessions reduce the amount of um, weight that I have your silverback set at over your holding weight because at first I set it really high because most people are typically pulling overly hard into the back wall so I set it high for a reason because I don't want people letting off the safety and it going off so once you learn that once you learn that principle and the more consistent you were and I could watch you having to pull through the same amount every time then I slowly started to reduce your release 
or the you know the actual release weight of that tension activated release to where now I feel like you're able to still make good shots while still being steady. Yeah, I feel more in control basically when I get to that point. Yeah, this there's so many questions on which release I would recommend for someone who's never started. The reality is, and I don't know if this is true in golf too, but the reality is it might be more difficult for you to learn the silverback within the first three to four days, but the longevity of what you're going to get out of archery is tenfold. Um, It just seems like it's too easy for an archery shop to put a wrist strap release around someone's finger and relate it to a gun, especially with you. If you walked into most archery shops, they would have put a wrist caliper release around your wrist. They would have said, you just pull back, look through the peep, put that pin on the target, and then it's just like shooting your shotgun, just hit the trigger. And within a year, you, you know, you're most likely going to be dealing with anticipation, embracing your shot you know, or target panic. Mm-hmm. Whereas this way, you know, it was obvious that you were highly likely to, to feel some type of like, you know, you were, you were predicting the shot to fire. And sometimes I showed you like when we did the video mm-hmm. in slow motion, your eyes were close, like you were closing and clenching before the arrow was even leaving the bow. And then once I started to say, listen, this is like all the work you're putting in is so that that shot would go off and you'd be able to watch that arrow go through all the way to the target. So, one and you're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. And then once that started happening, you you know you were able to to not have that flinching reaction, and you're able to just let off the safety and pull through the release. So it was yeah. I mean, I have a long perfect. way to go, but it goes back to the basics. So I'll just keep practicing and working on that consistency. I don't know. You were shooting. You were shooting a group the size of a top of a pop can today when I would say when, when I had you stop mm-hmm. practicing at 20 yards for someone that's been shooting archery for two days. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. That's, that was out in the wind, too. <laughs> that was outside. Testament to your skills, John. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> great stuff. Well, has anyone got anything to add? This was uh, probably the least archery podcast I've ever had, but honestly... That's what's cool about it being mine is I can talk about something I'm geeked out about. Chad's like the, I almost was, I don't want to say I was bummed to have to hunt because I wasn't, but I was really like, I was stalking around. Meanwhile, thinking, I really want to be seeing what Chad's doing right now. EJ's got the cliff notes. He was around. I got the cliff time. notes. I paid attention. <laughs> we got his number. We got the grill. What do you got to add, Jim? Anything? You've been you've been hanging around for a few days. Nah, not not too much. It's been cool. It's been cool to you know to to be around Chad and to eat some of this wonderful food and slay some pigs and. Watch Tyler go from not shooting a bow <laughs> to killing a pig. I gotta say, I never thought I'd get awesome. off that Aki bow for a while. <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, three days ago we had him shooting the Aki bow. He's just pulling back bungee cords and, and letting it rip. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been cool. So for those of you listening who don't know. Um, 
I was actually ringside at UFC 200 mm-hmm. with Rogan, and I think you had the best fight of the night <laughs> because you beat the crap out of that guy. And um, literally, Jim wins. I'm sitting there just excited to be at 200, and he comes jumping up on the side of the cage and looks right at me. What'd you say? I was like, uh, we got to go kill some stuff. (laughs) Literally, like, runs around the ring, 360, jumps up on the cage, and he's like, Dudley, I want to go kill some stuff. And I was like... Looking around like, wait, is there <laughs> yeah, are there other Dudleys in here? No. So I, um, this is me holding true to the promise, man. Thank you. Thank you. You got your first hog today. Well, spot and stock hog. Spot and stock hog, yeah. With your compound, we got we got Jim and New both set up the other day. Um, he shot my door. Yeah, that was impressive. <laughs> that was the best. And that was fantastic to watch. Even your mark, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I had someone today on um, the Instagram at the he put in the comments hashtag from doors to boards. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Actually, I'm gonna find out I'm gonna look quick at who did that because he needs props. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was we, very good. We gotta we gotta see who who did that because that was awesome. Um, let's see here. Yep. Jeff underscore PA61. Jeffrey Engelbert. Good tag, good hashtag, dude. I liked it. So, um, yeah, we'll be coming at you pretty soon with some new podcasts. I've got some really cool stuff coming up this next week. Um, I'm going to have a few foreign guests actually coming up pretty soon, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, competitive archery, get into some competitive archery, um, talk with some international stuff, and it looks like um, I'll soon be taking office in Switzerland at the World Archery Excellence Center um, for some training sessions there with my good buddy Juan Carlos. So I'm going to finalize that and then I'll let all of you European teams know. So if you're interested, you can come see us in Lausanne and uh, hang out and we can elevate archery to a whole new level. So thanks everybody. Appreciate the round table and Chad can't thank you enough, man. That was an awesome time, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We all need to learn more from you on cooking good food and Eat clean, train mean, all that good stuff. Eat what you reap. All right. See you, everybody. Knock on. How about this Jamie Hackett? You sure he didn't? Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.